Good evening. Um, I feel like I'm basically preaching to my family tonight <laughs> and a few extra people, so <laughs> a prophet is not without honor in his own hometown, right? <laughs> so, uh, but I'm, I look forward to that, and I want to thank uh, Pastor Dan for, uh, for having me preach tonight, and thank you all for listening. And um, I met uh, just a few of you. I learned your names, uh, but God willing, we'll get to know you guys more as the years uh, pass, and we keep visiting Dan and Kelly and Braden and Maggie. The sermon tonight is from Psalm 13. So would you turn to Psalm 13? Paul already read it for us. <clears throat> and the topic of this psalm is an issue that all of us have either faced in the past, are facing in the present, or will face at some point in the future. And the topic of the psalm is suffering. All of us face suffering because we all live in a, in a broken world, in a world that's been cursed because of our sin. So all of us will face suffering to some extent, and as one author has said, if you haven't faced suffering, all you need to do is live longer, right? Uh, now, we may think that if you're a Christian, right, if you follow after God, you'd face less suffering. But actually, Scripture tells us that often the opposite is true. That often, just like Jesus, God has us follow him in suffering. God walks us down the path of the cross. So, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, Jesus taught us in Matthew 8, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or Paul warns us that we must suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And then Peter urges us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Right? So I think Scripture teaches us pretty clearly that God often leads Christians through suffering. He, he often leads us down the path of the cross. But he hasn't left us alone in suffering. Right? Um, he's, he's warned us that it will come. And he's instructed us how to respond. And I think that's one reason why Psalm 13 is in the Bible. Why is it in the Bible? Well, one reason is that God is teaching us as Christians how to respond to suffering. He's teaching us how to respond when it comes. And specifically in this psalm, God teaches us to pray. Right? He, when we face suffering, what should we do? He says we should pray when we face suffering, right? We, we should not look at ourselves, but he teaches us to look to him. And more than that, we don't even have to ask how we should pray because he teaches us how to pray in this psalm. And that's what I think this psalm is all about. How should Christians pray when they face suffering? How should suffering Christians pray? And I think we can learn how to pray by following David's example here. How did David respond when he faced suffering? How did he pray? And I think we see in this psalm three different things that he did 
And I, the first thing is in verses 1 to 2. And the second thing is in verses 3 to 4. The third thing is in verses 5 to 6. And that'll be the three points of our, of our sermon tonight. Uh, how, how should suffering Christians pray? We'll learn three things. First from verses 1 to 2. Then from verses 3 to 4. And then from verses 5 to 6. And, and the first thing I see in this psalm is that suffering Christians should cry out to the Lord with our questions. We should cry out to the Lord with our questions. Did you notice the re repeated question in verses 1 to 2? Do you see it? What is it? It's how long, right? How long? How long? How long? Can you hear David's agony in this psalm? He, he, he says, how long will this go on? What was David going through, right, when he wrote this? What was he going through? We don't really know. Some people think that he was sick. And they say that because in, in verse 3, he says, I will enlighten my eyes or I'll sleep the sleep of death. Some people think he was sick. Other people think that he was in some kind of a conflict with someone else for the throne of Israel. You remember, David was the king of Israel, right? And if you remember his story, at several points he was in conflict with, so at the beginning, who was he in conflict with? Saul, right? Yeah, he was in conflict with Saul uh, before he became king. And then at the end, he was even in conflict with his own son, Absalom. Some people think maybe, maybe at some point that he was in conflict with someone for the throne of Israel. We don't know. But whatever situation David was in when he wrote this psalm, we know one thing for sure. Right? To David, it seemed like God had abandoned him. Right? It, it seemed like he wasn't there. Listen to the questions that he asks. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? What's David asking? Where are you? Right? Don't you see what's happening? We also know that David's suffering here caused him great anxiety and despair. He said he's taking counsel. He said, how long will I take counsel in my soul all the day? What's that mean? It means he's wrestling with his thoughts. Why is he wrestling with his thoughts? Well, I think maybe this last question in verse 2 gives us some insight into the reason that David felt such anxiety. He says, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? His enemy was exalted over him. Now maybe... The enemy is death itself, like we said. Or maybe, maybe the enemy is someone, a specific person that he's in conflict with over the throne of Israel. We don't know. But we do know that his enemy was exalted over him. Now one thing we have to remember is that David had been promised by God, right? God promised David that he and his descendants would rule over Israel and the world forever. You know that? 
God promised David he and his descendants would rule over Israel and the world forever. We see that in 2 Samuel 7. You can read that. It's, it's the Davidic covenant. It's the promise God made to David. Now, if God had really promised David, you and your descendants will rule over the world forever, how could his enemy be exalted over him? Right? Whether it's, whether it's death or whether it's someone else, how could that happen? If he and his descendants, according to God's promise, according to God's covenant, would rule over the world forever. There's something wrong with this picture, right? How, how long could it go on? Now, can you see how David's experience here foreshadows the experience of his greatest descendant? Who's David's greatest descendant? Jesus Christ, right? And what does Christ mean? Do you think about this? What does Christ mean? It means the anointed one, right? It, it means the one in the line of David who would rule over Israel and the world forever. We even saw that this morning in Acts 4, quotes from Psalm 2, and that says it talks about the anointed one who will rule over the world forever, right? If that's true, how could he be crucified and killed by the Roman Empire? Jesus had enemies. How could he have enemies? How could his enemies be exalted over him? Jesus' followers have enemies too right? A lot of times Christians will summarize our enemies in three ways. Have you heard this before? Who, who are our enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Have you heard that before? That's a good way to hold on to it, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world despises Christians in the gospel, right? You might see glimpses of this at work, school, in your family, our flesh, our own sin, right, often bucks against God and, and, and what he desires, right? Our, our own flesh is an enemy to us. And behind, all, behind this, what is it? It's the evil one, our great enemy. How does Satan operate according to Scripture? Well, I can think of three ways. Persecution, temptation, and condemnation, Right? Satan, Revelation says, Satan stirs up the world to persecute the church, right? Uh, what did Satan do to Eve in the garden? He tempted her to sin. He does that today. He tempts us to sin, right? He tempts our flesh. And, and condemnation, right? What did, what did Satan do to Job? Right? Satan went before God and said, Job, Job's not going to follow you. He condemned Job before God. And Satan condemns us, right? We have an enemy. Living in this world as a Christian, especially if you've lived a long time, you might rightly ask, how long shall my enemies be exalted over me? We face this our entire lives. Sometimes it can seem like God has abandoned us. Sometimes it can seem like God has abandoned his own people. That's what David was feeling when he wrote this psalm. Now I want us to notice that David 
His suffering leads him to draw near to the Lord rather than to run away from God. Right? Many use suffering as an excuse to abandon God. But this should never be the Christian's response. Our suffering should always lead us to draw near to the Lord, right? to cry out to Him. Think about this. How foolish would it be to run away from God in our suffering? Right? How foolish would it be to run away from the only one who can really help us, the maker of heaven and earth? Notice one other thing. David cries out to God with questions, right? He cries out to God with his questions. There's a sense in which God invites us to question him in our suffering, to ask, how long will this go on, right? To ask, why is this happening to us? I think sometimes we could be hesitant to ask God these kinds of questions, right? Because we think, we think maybe it's not the right thing to do. But we have to be careful about being more spiritual than the Bible, right? Or, or more spiritual than Jesus, right? What did, what did Jesus ask when he was suffering? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? What did Jesus do? He cried out to God with his questions. We, too, should cry out to God with our questions. Well, I don't think we should only cry out to God with our questions, all right? And that leads to the second point in our psalm, okay? The second point from verses 3 to 4, and, and that is this, all right? The second point I see in this psalm is that suffering Christians should ask God to help us by reasoning with Him from his word. I know that's a mouthful, all right? So I'll say it again. Suffering Christians should ask God to help by reasoning with him from his word. I see that in verses 3 to 4. Let me read these. David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But here we see the request, right? Here's David's request. Isn't that the heart of all prayer? It's request. It's petition. It's asking God to help. Well, what does David ask God to do? He says, consider and answer me. Consider and answer me. The Hebrew verb translated consider here is literally, look, look. So imagine, all right, if you're a kid in here, you can imagine this, right? If you're a little kid and you need your parents' help and your parents are in conversation with someone else and you come up to them and they're not looking at you, right? And you're like, mom, mom, you know, dad. What, what does the kid want the parent to do? Look at them, right? Would you just look at me and help me? I think that's exactly what David is saying to God here. He's saying, would you just look at me? Would you, would you look at me and help me? Would you answer me? He says, would you enlighten my eyes, right? I think he's saying, God, would you look down at me and look at my downcast face and turn it into joy? Would you enlighten my eyes? 
But what I want us to notice here is that David, in his request, when he asks God for help, he reasons with the Lord. Right? He reasons with the Lord. I think what we see in verses 3 and 4 is kind of a, a conditional reasoning. Right? A, a, if you don't help me, this is going to happen. Right? If you don't help me, what's going to happen? He says, if you don't help me, I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. If you don't look to me, he says, my enemy will say I have overcome. If you don't help me, my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. What's David doing? He's reasoning with God. Right? He's reasoning with God. He's saying, help me for this reason. Right? Now I'll ask you a question here. A little thought experiment. All right? Why would this line of reasoning be convincing to God? Right? Or let me put it another way. <clears throat> Why should God take David's side and not his enemy's side? What if the enemy, look at it from the enemy's perspective, all right? The enemy might say, one of David's enemies might say, God, would you help me prevail over David? Why should God take David's side and not the enemy's side? I think the answer is obvious in a sense. God promised David that he and his descendants would rule over Israel and the world forever, right? God had made a covenant with David, right? <clears throat> and if David's enemies prevailed over him, then God's covenant in 2 Samuel 7 would be false. Here's the reason I say this. I think David is reasoning with God on the basis of God's own word, right? On the basis of the promises that he made to him and the covenant that he made with him. And I think we see here how David foreshadows, again, his greatest descendant, Jesus Christ. David is at a very low point in this psalm, obviously, right? But Jesus went even lower. David says, if you don't help me, I'll sleep the sleep of death. But Jesus did sleep the sleep of death. He died. He was put in the grave. But we see just a few psalms over in Psalm 16 that what did God promise the Messiah? He promised the Messiah that he would not abandon him to the grave. Or, or in Psalm 110, what does he promise? He promises that the Messiah, the Christ, will rule in the midst of his enemies. If Christ had remained in the grave, God's word would be false. What's the good news? It's that he didn't remain in the grave, right? The good news is that God has raised Christ from the dead and exalted him over all of his enemies. God has fulfilled his promises and he's established a new covenant. Right? We celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning. What did Jesus say on that night? He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus has triumphed in the resurrection. And not just over the Roman Empire, right? No, he's triumphed over the world, over sin, over the devil, and even death itself. So, what about us? 
right? When we follow Christ in suffering, when we bear the cross, do we ask the Lord to help us? Do we, do we reason with the Lord like David does here? I think sometimes it's very easy for us as religious people to use language in prayer that almost shows we don't really believe God's a person. We, believe, we use flowery language or repeated language or strange language that imagine if, if we prayed sometimes the way we pray to like if we talk to our spouse that way it'd be like whoa that's kind of weird right or if we talk to another person that way now i don't want to say god is just like any other person he's exalted he's holy he's beyond us right clearly we should address him in a reverent way but he's not less than a person he's a real person right and and we we should remember we're talking to the living god when we pray to him. He wants us, according to this psalm, he wants us to ask him for help. And I think this psalm also tells us he invites us to reason with him. How do we reason with him? On the basis of his word. I think that means we have to know the way God thinks, right? How do we know the way God thinks? From his word. He's told us how he thinks, right? We read his word. So, you know, let me ask you, do you read the word, right? Do you know how God thinks? I'm not going to leave kids off the hook here, right? I want to talk to the kids in here for a second. I know that many of you guys, I know my nephew and niece, I know you guys read like crazy, all right? You're, the only ones I can think of is Fancy Nancy books, all right? Or something else, right? No, okay, other books, guy books, hardy boys. I don't know what kids, what boys read now, all right? I know you guys read like crazy. That's awesome. You can read the Bible, right? You can read God's Word. You want to know how to pray? You can read God's Word. What's the most important thing to know about the Bible? It's the main message, right? Here's the main message. Even if you're a kid, you could say this. If someone said to you, what's the main message of the Bible? You could say this. Christ died for our sins, and he was raised from the dead to give us life, right? What do we call that? We call that the gospel. Right? Christ died for our sins, and he was raised from the dead to give us life. Even a kid can say that. That's the most important thing. This is the basis of all of our prayers, right? We say, God, would you please deliver me from my sin and give me life in Christ, right? But, that's not it. Not just the main message. We need to know all the other stuff too. Let me give you an example, right? Isaiah 46.4 says, Even to your old age, I am he. And to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you. I will bear you. I will carry you. And I will save you. How do we pray? God, would you carry me in my old age? right? You have made me. Will you keep me? Will you bear me and carry me and save me? Right? This is what it means to pray to God on the basis of his word. We need to read the word. We need to reason with God on the basis of his word. And this is the second point I see in this psalm. 
suffering Christians should ask God to help by reasoning with Him from His Word. Suffering Christians should ask God to help by reasoning with Him from His Word, on the basis of His Word. Only one more point to go. All right, last point. And this might be the most important point in the psalm. All right, and the reason I say that is because this is the great turning point in the psalm. Read verses 5 to 6 with me. It says, but, right, there's the great turning point. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David begins the poem, the, the, poem, the psalm, in despair. But he ends in confidence. Not in self-confidence, but in confidence in the Lord. Even though he has sorrow in his heart all the day, he says he has trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord, in the loving kindness of the Lord. And this is my third point, that we should trust Suffering Christians should trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. I think when we encounter suffering, however it comes, we can be easily tempted to doubt the Lord's character. Some people even become angry and embittered with God. But this isn't how David responds, is it? David does question God's timing. He says, how long, right? He's honest about God's role in suffering. He says, will you forget me forever? But he never questions God's character. He never doubts God's love. He says, I have trusted in your loving kindness. The word translated loving kindness here in verse 5 is the Hebrew word hesed. Maybe you've heard that word before. Hesed. Right? And, and this is translated in different ways in our English translations. I think that it refers to both God's kindness and to his loyalty. To his kindness and to his loyalty. So the Lord is kind and good and gracious, and, and he even gives us what we don't deserve, right? That's his kindness. That's something really easy to forget in suffering, isn't it? we face suffering, we forget even now the Lord is giving us what we don't deserve. Right? That's His grace. I think the word loving kindness captures well that side of His love. But it doesn't capture as well the other side, and that is His loyalty. Uh, that the Lord is loyal and faithful and steadfast and keeps all of His promises. So I actually like the translation better, the translation steadfast love. But some of the translations do it. I think it's helpful because it communicates both of these aspects. Both that God is loving and kind and that he is loyal and true and faithful. He's someone who can be trusted, right? That's why David says, I have trusted in your loving kindness or or as I've said, we could translate it, your steadfast love. I have trusted in your steadfast love. I think David's thinking specifically 
about this, God's steadfast love in keeping his covenant with him. I say that because in 2 Samuel 7, God says that he will never remove his hesed, his steadfast love, his loving kindness from David and his descendants. David was so confident in this promise of God that he is sure the Lord will answer his prayer requests. Notice that David's thinking of the future in these final lines. Verses, verse 5, he says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Right? He's talking about what he'll do in the future. He's, in the future, he, was, he, he will rejoice. Right? In the future, uh, he will sing to the Lord. He's sure that the Lord will answer his requests. How can he be so sure? Because God is a God of steadfast love. God is a God who always keeps his promises. And that's what David is. He's he's reasoning with God on the basis of his promises, on the basis of his covenant. And he's sure that God will keep his promises. So Christians who are suffering must hold on to the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the source of all of our certainty in prayer. The steadfast love of the Lord. One theologian wrote that faith is not simply belief in God. It's a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us. Of His kindness toward us. When we are facing suffering, how can we be firm and certain that God is benevolent toward us, that he's kind to us because of Jesus Christ, right? His very name, Jesus, means salvation. He's come to save us from our sins. And he said he'll come again. He'll come, why? To deliver us from the wrath of God. To give us life. Jesus Christ is the reason that Christians can be firm and certain that one day, one day, not now, in the future, right? One day, we will rejoice with all of our hearts and we will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with us. We walk by faith, not by sight, right? We, we wait for the sight. The sight's in the future. What do we do until that day, right? As we're called to take up our cross and follow him. How do we walk this path of the cross waiting for the resurrection? I think Psalm 13 tells us three things that we can do. It tells us we can cry out to the Lord with our questions. It tells us we can ask him to help on the basis of his word. And it tells us that we can trust in his steadfast love to us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us life according to your word. We give you thanks for it in Christ's name. Amen.